The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, of course, impeachment is our first topic. Later in the hour, we'll turn to Biden's first 100 days and talk about debt cancellation, starting with student debt. Astra Taylor will comment. Finally, the PGA, the ruling body of golf, announced over the weekend they are canceling their long-standing plans to hold the U.S. Open at Trump's golf course in Florida. The New York Times reports he is more devastated by this than by impeachment. We'll have comment from the legendary sports writer Robert Lipsight, our man, on the subject of Trump and golf. But first, House Democrats are ready to impeach Donald Trump for a second time. This time for the crime of incitement of insurrection at the Capitol last Wednesday. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. We reached him at home in Madison. John, welcome back. Good to be with you. And and might I add that these are times when Henry Wallace's warnings about American fascism uh, seem especially prescient. Yes. And I should just note, we're speaking on Tuesday at midday and things are moving very fast. So the issue right now is incitement of insurrection. I don't think the House will have much problem presenting evidence for that crime. Yeah, I think just show the video. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's this is very different than last year's impeachment, and it is, of course, with Donald Trump being a, the rare president where you talk about the annual impeachment. <laughs> uh, but the last impeachment involved establishing intent, looking at timelines, looking at transcripts, bringing witnesses in to say what they remembered hearing disputes about all that. Here, you have a circumstance where the president tweeted about January 6th, called people to Washington, told them to come, and then went to the rally last Wednesday, January 6th, appeared at that rally and used what, uh, by almost any measure, to be described as fighting words, you know, including the word fight, and then said to this massive, angry crowd, you know, let's head for the Capitol, as the Capitol was weighing whether to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election. All of it's public, all of it's present. And so we will have, again, a very different impeachment and one that, frankly, can move much faster. Of course, some of our friends say that since it takes two-thirds of the Senate to convict a president who's been impeached by the House, and since half the Senate is Republican— He'll never be convicted. And in the meantime, vital business of the people will be neglected. What do you think about that? There's no vital business of the people being done this week. Uh, The House and the Senate are both out of session until they come back in. The House comes back in for this impeachment consideration. Uh, The Senate isn't scheduled to be back in session until January 19th. So the vital business of the people uh, is not being interrupted uh, this week in the way it was interrupted last week by a violent mob overtaking the capital of the United States in an incident that left at least five, I think we're now talking about six people dead, and that interrupted the governance of the nation. When a president does what this president has done, you have to impeach. That's the first step. You don't think about what will 
come next, whether the Senate will do the right thing or not. You do the right thing in the House. And to their credit, they are preparing to do the right thing. Then you send it to the Senate. That creates a pressure on the Senate. I expect that Mitch McConnell will block them, but that should never be the the standard that, that you've got a problem in the Senate so you don't act in the House. And one final thing to remember is this. I ask people all the time, what do you remember about Andrew Johnson, Abraham Lincoln's successor? What you remember is he was impeached, right? He was not convicted, but you do remember he was impeached. And frankly, um, the truth of the matter is that that when we look at the historical record of Richard Nixon, what do we talk about? He he was threatened with impeachment and quit. Bill Clinton, it's going to be a part part of his legacy one way or the other. And that is certainly true for Donald Trump. Donald Trump, though, becomes a unique figure, the first president ever to be impeached twice. That historical record matters because when people look back and ask in such a turbulent, awful moment, did anybody step up? Was there, was there an attempt to do the right thing? Uh, members of the House on Wednesday will have that chance, and that's good. And they, you know, if they force the hand of the Senate, fantastic. I hope they do. But even if that doesn't happen, history will have been written and it will have been written in the proper way by the House if, in fact, they impeach Donald Trump a second time. There's a couple of other things about incitement to insurrection. As you have written uh, just today, Tuesday, at thenation.com, incitement to insurrection is not only an impeachable offense. According to the 14th Amendment, Article 3, it can be a basis for expulsion from Congress it can be a basis of expulsion from all federal office. It's also a federal crime, it turns out, with a penalty of 10 years in prison. So are these uh, possibilities that should be on the table? Absolutely, but not as an alternative to impeachment. Frankly, taking up the 14th Amendment, focusing on it, that's quite meaningful. It does have, it, ha- it has a significant impact. It could Uh, through a series of actions, prevent Donald Trump from running for president again, and frankly, from leveraging uh, his ex-presidency to continue doing the things he's been doing, Uh, raise money, position himself politically, potentially call people to uh, even violent action, uh, whatever. Taking away the option of returning to the presidency does, in fact, raise the the, the prospect that he might be sort of a toothless tiger, right? You know, he's, it makes it harder for him to uh, advance his agenda. And I think that's an appropriate punishment for uh, incitement to insurrection. With that said, that can't be the alternative to impeachment because impeachment is the known and proper immediate response to uh, actions such as those the president took. So you weave the 14th amendment into the article of impeachment. And if you read it, uh, the article, it references the 14th amendment. It also uh, uses language related to it. In fact, it closes off with language very closely related to the 14th amendment. So it's there, it's woven into the impeachment article. Uh, That is, and in fact, if it, if it advanced, if it got approved by the, by the Senate, i.e. if there's a trial and, and Trump was removed, you would, you would have the impact or a lot of the impact of the 14th. If the Senate does not act, I hope that members of the House and the Senate will vote for a privileged resolution, a House-Senate joint, I should say a House-Senate joint resolution that 
states that the president has violated the 14th Amendment, spells it out in specific terms, rebukes him for that, and specifically says that he is barred from seeking office in the future. I hope that they do that. I hope they both vote for it. In the Senate, it's a more complex thing. It might wait until the Democrats take control. Uh, There's different interpretations on this, but I suspect it would need to be signed by President Biden. That's another route, right, that these things are within the realm of possibility. But I still would hold firm to that counsel that you don't say this is an alternative to impeachment. Impeachment is the immediate and appropriate response to what the president has done. Removal from office, formal removal from office is the immediate and appropriate response to what the president has done. If members of our Senate are incapable of rising to the level of governing appropriately, then this alternative route with the 14th Amendment is something that, that frankly, will be considered. One more thing. What's going to happen next Wednesday? Joe Biden will be sworn in as president by Chief Justice John Roberts at noon. The Trump mob has said it will return to Washington to challenge this event with as much energy and determination as they have shown in the past. 15,000 National Guardsmen are being called to defend the Capitol this time around. Some say this it's too risky for Joe Biden to do the traditional outdoor inauguration, raising his hand on the other hand on the Bible in front of the Capitol. Uh, given the threats of violence, given all the new technologies of, of violence, and that it would be much better for Joe Biden to do this in a more protected area indoors. What do you think? I think that's an absurd suggestion. Just as it was necessary in a very, very difficult moment for members of the House to return, members of the Senate to return after what happened on January 6th and complete the business of certifying the election of Joe Biden as president of the United States, it is necessary for Joe Biden uh, to confidently accept that presidency with an inaugural that does not, it will not, you know, be a normal inaugural. We are in the midst of COVID-19 and all the other concerns associated with it. So this isn't going to be some big crowd event. And it's not also going to be some big festivity in the traditional sense. But I think that for Joe Biden to, you know, go to a secure, undisclosed location and, you know, swear his oath with John Roberts uh, would be a, a very bad sign. It would be a sign that the, the forces that seek to intimidate and destabilize our governing processes have succeeded to such an extent that the new president of the United States takes his oath of office in secret. Now, if there was an immediate, clear threat, something that they, that they knew they could not avert, well, then, of course, you have to. You have to do the proper, proper procedures and protocols. But if they can create a secure enough circumstance where Joe Biden can step to the traditional spot and be sworn in, it's a, it's a relatively quick process, then I, I would argue that that's the appropriate thing to do. Remember, we are at a time when the whole world is watching the United States and countries that have been through very, very difficult moments of their own are watching how we respond to this. This is a time when we need to make a, a, a very firm pivot out of the Trump moment into something different. 
the whole world is going to celebrate with us when that happens. There's a lot of people that are ready for that moment. And uh, I don't think that, that it is well served by limiting it or uh, doing it in secrecy. I think it is a proud moment for America. And it's frankly a moment at which Joe Biden will be challenged to call us to that next, that next America, that next place. And I believe it is perhaps the most important thing he will do as president of the United States. It's amazing, but true, that the first hour of his presidency may be the most important of, of that presidency because it is in that hour that he can set a tone that says, Trump is gone, Trumpism is over, and that this country will move boldly in the direction of economic and social and racial justice, saving the planet and a set of priorities that emphasize peace and diplomacy over militarism and threats. John Nichols, readamatthenation.com. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. I'm honored to be with you. Wide-scale debt relief should be one of Joe Biden's top priorities in his first 100 days. That's what Astra Taylor says in the new issue of The Nation. It's devoted to the question of what Biden can do and should do. Astra, of course, is co-founder of the Debt Collective and director of documentary films, including What is Democracy? She's written for The New York Times, The LA Times, N Plus One, and other outlets. She's the author most recently of the book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. We talked about it here. We reached her today in Greensboro, North Carolina. Esther Taylor, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, household debt was a problem in America even before COVID arrived. Let's start there. Americans are indebted. In fact, I like to say that the American dream is now getting out of debt which means it's not to own your house outright, to have that white picket fence, but just to have zero dollars. That that's now an ambition for a huge number of people. The average American dies $62,000 in arrears. That was pre-COVID. What we have is a, a country, a society where wages have stagnated for 40 plus years and easy access to credit has covered that up. So credit has created this kind of illusion of prosperity or just being able to get by. You put your necessities on the credit card. People put a whole lot of medical bills on their credit cards. People go into student debt to go to college. People borrow money because they're not making enough at their low paid jobs. And so this was uh, reaching epic proportions before COVID. Consumer debt in this country had reached a whopping 14 trillion and so what happens when tens of millions of jobs evaporate overnight? Well, so do the paychecks, right? And so what happens is people are, are going into debt and we're facing a, a reality where when rent moratoriums lift uh, and student loans become unpayment, sorry, student loan payments become unpaused. So these sort of measures that have been taken over the last 10 months because of the pandemic, when those end, people are going to get massive bills. And a bad situation is about to become much worse. So that is something we're experiencing in a far more dramatic way during this pandemic. And I think it's something we need to put the forefront of our, of our political response and our economic response. Well, student debt, of course, has gotten the most consistent political attention over for a long time. You've been working on this for years. 
Uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren both campaigned around student debt. Didn't Obama have a program to reduce student debt or manage it or something like that? Student debt is something that, you know, has been growing by unbelievable leaps and bounds. So I was part of a group uh, during Occupy Wall Street that marked what we called One T-Day in 2012 under the Obama administration. One T-Day was the day student debt surpassed $1 trillion. That's now the good old days. We're at $1.7 trillion. And when you have you know this kind of compound interest, it's just going to grow. So we're looking towards probably protesting to T-Day very soon under a Biden administration. What's happened is that both parties, there's a kind of bipartisan consensus that education is something that should be debt financed, right? That it's not, a, we don't have, we, we have figures like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren responding to public you know, pressure and activists like the Debt Collective and others who are saying, no, education is a, is a public good. It should be a right. The fact is both parties, you know, want to treat it as a commodity and their solution for uh, the last 50 years has been that people should borrow in order to attend uh, school. And that's a failed policy. It's, it, it's just a, it's a, it's a program that has led to 45 million people being buried in student debt because they were told the only way to get ahead in the world, you know, was to go to college and get a degree. That was the only way they're going to have a decent life. So we need some dramatic reassessment of this approach to education. I'm of the opinion that we need public education for all who want it. Two and four year public universities and colleges should be free. That's what we had not that long ago in California where you are, right? Then governor of uh, California, uh, Ronald Reagan was the one who sort of began imposing tuition at the University of California system uh, in response to social movements, actually, and, and you know, in line with the conservative Republican agenda. So we need to go back to that model, expand that model. Um, and the fact is the federal government owns about 95% of all that $1.7 trillion of student debt. So what the debt collective has been arguing is that Joe Biden, on his first day in office, can and should, with a signature, cancel all federal student debt. This is money that um, he has unique singular power to erase. Congress in 1965, as part of the Higher Education Act, actually granted the Department of Education the ability to do what is called compromise and settle student debt because they that is that is federally held debt. And so the ability to create debt implies legally the ability to cancel it. So actually, this is student debt's really important in this moment, not because it's you know the worst kind of debt or or because it's somehow um, you know it's there's something special about it. What's special about it is the fact that without uh, Mitch McConnell intervening, without the Republicans being able to undermine this this endeavor, Joe Biden can literally instruct the Education Secretary to erase it all. And there are lots of reasons for doing so. There's an ethical argument, which is that it's not fair to have a generation burdened by this incredible debt load. And there's an economic argument, which is that all of that money people are paying to their to student loan servicers would then go into the economy and would just allow them to buy groceries, pay their rent, <laughs> survive in a pandemic. Of course, there's lots of other kinds of debt. Pandemic is very much on our minds right now, but medical costs seem a much more complicated thing. Anyone who's ever tried to look at their, uh, you know, insurance statement, your doctors bill you separately from the emergency room as a private operation from the hospital. And, 
your private insurance covers part of it, and if you're in Medicare, the government pays part of it. It seems like it would be a lot harder to address medical debt. All of these are interconnected. They seem separate. Student loans, credit cards, medical debt. It's all part of a larger system where people have to debt finance the things they need to survive. Again, because they're not paid enough and because we don't have public services. We don't have universal health care or free public education or, you know, um, social housing. So people have to debt finance the things that they need to live. And so medical debt is uniquely out of control in this country. In Canada, people aren't going into bankruptcy because of medical debt. Medical debt doesn't exist. But here, uh, it's the leading cause of bankruptcy. That was the case, again, before the pandemic. Of course, people not only have to face the nightmare of possibly getting sick with COVID, but then they have to face the possibility of incredible um, bills, you know, life-destroying debt that, that might come with surviving this disease. So it's incredibly important that we address this. Medical debt is tricky. So part of why we're leading with the demand to cancel student debt, again, is because Joe Biden can do that on day one. Again, all it takes is a signature. Medical debt is held by many different entities, hospitals, uh, debt collectors who have bought uh, past due debts on the secondary market, um, you know, private uh, healthcare providers. So it's reflective of our piecemeal patchwork system that these debts are held all over the place. So in the piece for the nation I wrote, I said, well, one thing, just the way the federal government, just like the federal government can erase all the student debt it has, any debt owed to a veterans hospital, a military hospital, the government can just erase that. That's that's easy. Any medical debts uh, belonging to the government should be erased. But there, there has to be more creative initiatives to get rid of the rest of this medical debt. So Bernie Sanders, when he was running for office, proposed that the government could buy $81 billion of past due medical debt uh, and then extinguish it. That's a great idea. I mean, we need to think on that level. Uh, one other thing that I, I discovered by talking to consumer law experts who work on this is that nonprofit hospitals get their status as nonprofits because they're required by law to provide something called charity care, which means that if you're, you live twice above the poverty level, you get free emergency services. And guess what? Hospitals aren't providing that. They're not notifying patients that that's what they're entitled to. And they're billing them and leaving them with incredible amounts of debt, life-destroying debt. So one thing we need is just for the IRS, actually, to step up on its enforcement and say, look, hospitals, you have to notify your patients. You have to notify them in English and Spanish. You have to give the free services and thus eliminate the medical debt you know, that you are required to uh, to keep getting this nonprofit status. So, you know, I'm trying to think of things in this essay that that a bold administration could do without legislation. You know, I mean, because the thing is that, um, you know, that that we don't know what the balance of power is going to be. So that's an important thing to think about. But there's lots of things on the table that can help reduce the suffering caused by various kinds of debt, including medical debt. And, of course, we have to talk about the rent issue and the eviction protection, which my understanding is is temporary. And the day is going to come when people are supposed to pay the rent that has been postponed. How's that supposed to work? I think you used exactly the right word. We sometimes say there's been a rent moratorium, right, or a pause, but it's a postponement. And these bills are piling up. And we know people... We're having a hard time paying the rent again before the pandemic. So then how a year into this crisis, are you then supposed to pay 10 months, 11 months of back rent? 
right? It's not going to happen. That's why people are warning, why experts are warning of an eviction tsunami. Uh, you know, tens of millions of people are, are at risk of homelessness. The Debt Collective, the group that I helped found and organize with, we are building an anti-eviction uh, tool just for Los Angeles County, actually, a place you know. Um, Los Angeles County, something like 500,000 households are an imminent threat of eviction. So <laughs> let me just give you a picture of how hard it is to fight eviction in Los Angeles County. You get something that's called a, an unlawful detainer, so you have to answer that as the person who's being evicted. Well, guess what? It takes $500 to file such a thing and you have to go to the courts. So what we've done is we're building an app so that people can apply for a fee waiver and, 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 and challenge this eviction from home. The point, my, the point is that this is way too complicated um, and that we need some, we need a bold national response to this crisis because right now, again, we're in this sort of patchwork piecemeal system where legal aid, uh, providers are going to be totally overwhelmed. So we absolutely need to deal with this and and we need to say, you know, no evictions, but also that that back rent is not um is not collectible. So any aid that goes to the landlords or the banks should come with strict terms that say, okay, if you're getting help, then you can't also try to collect from tenants from from renters who are in arrears. Um this is something that, you know, we're just going to pay such a huge cost as a society if 40 million people and their children are evicted, right? Mm. I mean, this is something, it boggles the mind. You know, it's just one of these things where I can't believe that in the middle of a pandemic, we're even entertaining this possibility. Um, but, you know, it, it, again, it makes economic sense. It's not, it's the, we are all going to suffer if people are homeless, if neighborhoods are further decimated and hollowed out, right? So these, I think it's very important with all the kinds of debts that I lay out in the piece, student debt, medical debt, back due rent, mortgages, and later I talk about municipal debt. There's both, again, an ethical argument for canceling these debts and an economic one, right? This is how we're all going to recover from this crisis. One last thing. Republicans say people are in debt because they made bad choices, and that we need to encourage individual responsibility. If you're in debt, that's your problem. Don't expect me to pay your debts because of your bad choices. I imagine you've thought about this argument. We hear that one a lot. Pay your own damn debt. The thing we're trying to do as the debt collective and that I try to do in this piece is, is just point out what I think is accurate and factual. Again, when you look at how underpaid people are and the and the way that we are gouged as citizens of this country for healthcare, for education, the fact that individual indebtedness is not the product of poor choices. Another way of saying this is people are not poor because of poor choices, right? We are indebted because of structural conditions that give us no other choice but to borrow to survive. So the debt collectives like likes to say, we are not in debt because we live beyond our means. We are in debt because we're denied the means to live. Once again, if you live in the United Kingdom, you live in Canada, you live in Finland, you medical debt is an impossibility. <laughs> it's not something that's going to happen. Um, so I think this is, I think it's really important for us to challenge this idea that people are are taking these debts of choice, uh, you know, of sort of free will of their own choice. A lot of debt is taken under duress. So there's tons of data about this. You know, the payday lenders, for example, target overwhelmingly uh, single mothers who tend to be black and brown. Um, and why do these women take out payday loans? Well, they take them out to avoid 
being on the streets with their children, right? So we know these are, that's not a, that's not, you're not, you're not going in there going, what I'd really like today is that a short-term loan at 500% interest, that would be thrilling. No, you're doing this out of desperation. And we know there's a long history of resistance to usury, going into religious traditions, the biblical traditions of actually, you know, people understanding that this, the morality, the problem is not immoral debtors. The problem is those who take advantage of people and try to profit from pain and suffering. And that's the thing. We've let that that type of business go rampant in this country, you know, is, is people who are essentially vultures and who see a business opportunity in other people's poverty. Astrid Taylor, she wrote about debt relief as one of Joe Biden's key tasks in his first hundred days. Her piece is part of the nation's special issue on the first hundred days. You can read Astra and the other contributors, all activists and political people at thenation.com. Astra, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. The PGA, the Professional Golf Association, announced over the weekend they were canceling their long-standing plans to hold the U.S. Open at Trump's golf course in Florida. Maggie Haberman of the New York Times reported that, quote, he's angry about impeachment, people who have spoken to him say, but his reaction to the PGA decision was a different order of magnitude. He was, quote, gutted by the move, a person close to the White House says. We talked about Trump and golf back in 2017 with Robert Lipsight. He's a legendary sports writer and columnist at the New York Times and the award-winning author of more than a dozen books on sports, fiction and nonfiction, many for young adults. He's also the jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch, where he wrote about Trump and golf. And he's also a contributor to The Nation. At that point in 2017, when we spoke, upper-class golfers were key supporters of Trump. I asked him about Trump and golf. I despise the game almost as much as I despise Trump. But the, the heart of it is the idea that golf, of course, operates on the honor system, even though most of the presidents who played have cheated. But golf <laughs> does operate on, on, on the honor system. And the idea is that, you know, if, if you hit a bad shot, you don't ignore it and do it over again. You take the penalty. I, I think that this is part of that kind of character that, that golf is supposed to be a crucible of. Yes. But I, I, I think that when you have somebody like Trump who cheats, uh, who takes shots over again all the time, and then in, in probably the most grievous sin is he drove his golf cart onto the green, that, that kind of little patch of very meticulously cosseted grass with the hole in the middle. <laughs> and the whole idea of keeping the green pristine is because the good golfer, and I must say, uh, from all I've seen, uh, Trump is a good golfer. The good golfer is able to look at the green. It's called reading the green to kind of understand, you know, the curves and angles on the grass so that you can make your final putts. To drive his cart onto that is, is really, I guess, like pissing on the Vatican wall. That really is an ultimate affront, a, a kind of violation 
of what is considered sacred in the sport. You've described the the golf culture that Trump is part of as consisting of successful greed heads and wannabes. But but what about the zen of golf? You know, a man alone with all his weaknesses facing the ball that lies still. Isn't that a profound test of character and self-knowledge? I think there are a lot of profound ways to test yourself and to learn about yourself. And I think thrashing a little white ball that can't hit you back (laughs) may not be quite at the top of the list, John. I I think that I I find something bizarre in this idea of of golf as the hero's journey. I mean, come on. What it's basically there for, and, and by the way, on, on what hero's journey can you also eat, smoke, and, and make hedge fund deals? <laughs> okay. um, I, I think that business and the applications of business are really one of the main functions of golf. For women uh, who have been unable to, to crack a lot of the C-suites is that they, uh, you know, they don't belong to clubs. Uh, they don't in a sense, participate in in what I call urinal society. I mean, I think that so much of the real business of business gets done. Two guys, you know, peeing together in the clubhouse, and one turns to the other and says, so uh, what are you going to do about that new trucking deal? Uh And I think that's how a lot of business is taken care of, whether it's in the clubhouse, on the greens, in the bathrooms. And I I think that it's that kind of access and uh, easy sociability, uh, which is very important to business. You say that there's a sort of a working class golf course out there on Shelter Island. In in my neighborhood in L.A., there are are several public courses. I live near one called Rancho Park, where you can play 18 holes for $35.50 on weekdays, $21 if you're a senior. Doesn't that make golf a, a game for the little guy? Yeah. Sure. There's no question about it that that the little guy can play golf, that these working class golfers are really buying into what Trump himself calls the aspirational aspect of golf. Yeah. There is a sense that golf steps you up in class. Mm -hmm. And and Trump himself says that, you know, it shouldn't be too easy to, to play golf. You should have to work really hard and make a lot of money so you can really join a good club like one of mine uh, so that golf really means something. I think that, you know, there are, there are lots of, you know, I'm sure firemen and cops and uh, people who have stretches of free time who play golf. But again, I think that the pull of golf is really, you know, what you see on weekends on television in these great, vast, green Valhalla-looking clubs, and in the idea of the rich golfers and the the pro golfers who are, you know, a kind of emerging class of athlete in America, who, by the way, are, I think, just about, in my my history, just about the only athletes who are listed not by, you know, batting averages or how many rings uh, they've won or, you know, most valuable player awards by money earned. I think the money list 
is really the key to who are the top golfers. And I, I suspect that even though he you know, hasn't won anything in ages, Tiger Woods is still at the top uh, as, as one of the world's leading clothing models. Well, let's get back to Donald Trump for a, a minute here. He's more than a golfer. Of course, he owns and operates uh, luxury golf courses and owns the clubs, and he employs lots of people at his uh, golf courses and golf clubs. Tell us about Trump as an owner and an employer of uh, golf courses and clubs. You know, any time that he plays golf or talks about golf, he is, in a sense, promoting his brand. I mean, I don't think that anybody, I can't think of any politician in history who has done as well as he has in promoting his private businesses, you know, while he's purportedly doing taxpayer work. Last question. You say to understand golf is to understand Trump. Please explain. Well, there are aspects of, there are aspects of golf that play really into Trump's character. One way to do better in golf is cutting corners. In this case, you know, if, if, you, if you take a bad shot and want to take it over again and they let you do it, your partners let you do it, it's, it's called taking a mulligan. Actually, Clinton did it so often, it became called taking a billigan. <laughs> but but I, I think that the idea of this lazy man sport, I mean, it is a lazy man sport. I mean, he, he can't even walk around. He has to go in a cart. Yeah. I mean, it would be better, uh, better exercise if he actually walked or even if he carried his clubs. But, you know, we can't really get into that because except for Chris Christie, I don't think that body shaming is allowed in America anymore. That's certainly, not in the, certainly not among nation readers. So right. But in any case, so back, back to golf. So it's, it's a plutocratic sport. Played at its highest level, it's with extremely expensive equipment. Uh, it's in places that cost enormous amounts of money to join. I mean, his Mar-a-Lago club when he became president, the uh, the membership uh, initiation fee jumped from a hundred grand to two hundred mm. grand. Again. The, the perk of a president's golf club. Look who you could schmooze with, or said that you were schmoozing with. The, the joke always was that golfers and fishermen were the biggest liars in explaining how good they were. And the only difference was that fishermen had to show some evidence. <laughs> they had a fish. <laughs> golfers do not. Everybody, as they get older, become better golfers, uh, at least in their stories. So you lie, you cheat, you socialize. It's a sport that's not really a sport. It's a sport that's traditionally been exclusionary, that's been racist, that's been sexist, and is befouling the environment with chemicals. So how much more do you want to you know, <laughs> uh, compare Trump and golf? Robert Lipsight, the legendary sports writer. Read him at thenation.com and Tom Dispatch. Bob, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That was fun. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. 
For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. <laughs>